Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. Luke 7, 36 to 50. This is about Simon the Pharisee and the repentant woman, or often known as the sinful woman who repented of her sins. Luke 7, 36. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is, who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We have here an example of Jesus' confrontation of a religious authority. His name is Simon, as we see in verse 40. So Simon, this, uh, the Pharisee, this religious authority, official, and teacher of the people, invites Jesus to his house. Now, we notice with this, a religious official. In any casual reading of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and even in John, we know that it's usually the religious leaders who are confronting Jesus. It, you would expect that those who know the scriptures, those who know the Bible, that they would be the first to embrace Jesus. They would have read about the prophecies of the Messiah. They would have re read about the promises of God and eternal life from the Old Testament. They would be the first ones to embrace the true preaching of the Bible, the accurate and faithful preaching and teaching of the Bible. But this is not the case. And this should not surprise us. In fact, throughout the Bible, time and again, the prophets and the apostles are constantly confronting the leaders of the nation both the pastors and the politicians. Also the people generally, but typically the people follow after the example of pastors and politicians. So Luke gives us an example, one of several examples in the book of Luke of Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisee. 
Now, this Pharisee was requesting him to dine with him. Jesus does not offer, from verse 36, Jesus does not request or insist and say, I want to eat at your house. He doesn't do it in this passage. It is the Pharisee, Simon, who invites Jesus. And so if the Pharisee is inviting Jesus, would you not expect him as the host to do what's right? He should do what's right. He's the host. He's the one who invited Jesus. Jesus agrees. He agrees to dine with him. Remember that in the previous passage, Jesus was characterized in verse 34, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Now we have an example of this. We have an example of Jesus in the presence of an enemy, dining with him and showing up the enemy because this woman, a repentant, sinful woman, is there and she treats Jesus much better. Uh, much better than the Pharisee does. So now we have an example of the false accusation in the previous passage. We have an example of this. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. When they reclined, notice this is a biblical phrase. In, in the Bible, typically, w when eating a meal, they would recline. That is, lay on their side and have their front part towards the table and towards the food and their feet away. And this is what uh, we see in verse 37, 37 and 38. The woman comes into the house and it doesn't say why she came in or, or, or how she came in. It doesn't say that. But presumably the Pharisee had to and, and his whoever is taking care of the house and the door is permitting her to come and probably because the Pharisee wanted this test to be presented to Jesus. He probably wanted this test to be presented so that the Pharisee could find fault with Jesus, to be a fault finder. As Jude says in, in Jude, that these are grumblers finding fault, that this is the way the false teachers are. They look and they nitpick at this or that. And this is probably what's happening, and this is why she's granted permission to come into the Pharisee's house because otherwise these Pharisees would keep arm's length and even uh, many feet length away from the common people. They wouldn't mingle with them. They wouldn't touch them. They wouldn't allow them to come into their house. This did not happen. It was not the custom for this to happen. So therefore, this must be a setup. It must be the Pharisee framing Jesus to find fault with him. Verse 37 says, And behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And then again in verse 39, the Pharisee says, She is a sinner. What, Jesus should know what sort of person this woman is who is touching him that she is a sinner. It doesn't specify her sin. Perhaps we, we may judge correctly that she had sexual sin. And therefore... She was uh, one of ill repute and nobody wanted to associate with her on a regular and common basis. And the religious people, like this Pharisee, they all the more. They would want to make sure that they keep their distance and compare themselves to another ignoble person, and in this case, this woman. They would love to compare themselves and say, I'm better than they are. I'm superior than they. I do this and that religious activity. I know this and that. So I'm better than so-and-so. 
This is the way sinful, hard-hearted, stubborn people behave. Those who do not understand the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God, they behave this way. They prop themselves up and they put themselves on a pedestal and allow others to put themselves on a pedestal, but they put everybody else down. This is what happens to those who are unregenerate unbelievers. So, it says, And when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. She brings a vial... uh, a, a vessel of perfume. This would have been expensive. Where did she get this? How did she get this? She must have ob- obtained it by, by the, uh, the little wealth she had. She must have saved up for some time. How else would she have it? And if her sin was sexual sin, prostitution, then she wouldn't have been a rich woman. So there must have been some time that elapsed and some way for her to obtain that wealth. Nobody's going to just give it to her to buy perfume. And then her intentions... This shows that for a while now, she had the intention to do this. This is not a sudden incident. This is not a rash incident. This is something that is premeditated for a good cause. She came to Christ. She believed in Christ before this. She saved up. She acquired this. And then she waited for a time when Jesus would be in her proximity so that she could go to that house and do what she wanted to do. Verse 38 and standing behind him at his feet. Notice there. They are reclining at table, but she's behind him because she's over there by the feet, not there close to the food, but by the feet. And what is she doing over there? She's weeping. Nobody said anything. Did anybody say anything to her? Nobody said anything, but she's weeping. She's weeping because she's reflecting upon her own past. She's reflecting upon her own life and she knows she is in front of a holy Christ. Remember in chapter 5, Peter said when Peter saw the glory of Christ, when he brought up uh, fish, even though he did not bring up any overnight, he brought up fish because Jesus said, throw your net over for a catch. He did it and when it came up and the net was breaking and tearing, he said, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He realized the person who was in his presence. That's what she's doing. She realizes who's in her presence, a holy Christ, and she knows she's unworthy to be right there. And she began to wet his feet with her tears. This has to be a lot of tears. For her to be wiping uh, and wetting his feet with tears, it has to be a lot of tears. A lot of tears because she knows what her past was and how she was now forgiven because of Christ. And it says, kept wiping them with the hair of her head. Kept wiping them. So notice, she's standing behind him. She's weeping. She's wetting his feet with her tears, which must have been a lot of tears. Some minutes have, uh, have to have passed for this to happen. And then she, it says, kept wiping them uh, with her hair and Kissing his feet. This is repeated action. And anointing them with the perfume. She pours out the expensive perfume. She's weeping, a genuine kind of weeping and crying. And all of this is happening right there in front of the Pharisee. Right there in front of the Pharisee. The Pharisee doesn't stop her. The Pharisee doesn't say, no, 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 don't pour that perfume. I, I, or, no, 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 don't, don't. Keep, keep crying, I'll, let me go get the servant and get the water for you. Because in those 
regions where they have dusty and dirty roads and they wear sandals. They don't have roads like uh, paved roads everywhere. So every guest and even every owner of the house, when he comes into his house, he wants to get rid of the dirt and the dust and the grime off of his feet. So he washes his feet. This was done in Genesis 18. Abraham received three men and he gave them water and food. This happened also in Genesis 19 with Lot. When the two angels came in bodily form to Lot, he also gave them water and food. So this is what proper hosts do. But this host doesn't do it. He doesn't do it at all. In fact, he watches a woman of ill repute do all of this right in front of his face. And none of it moves him. Instead, notice in 39, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, because there were other officials, other Pharisees and authorities there, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, so he's thinking this, right? He's not saying it aloud, he's saying it to himself, and he says, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. If he were a prophet, well, Jesus is about to prove that he is a prophet in verses 40 to 50. Right off the bat in verse 40, it says, And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon doesn't announce anything. No words come out of his mouth. But Jesus knows exactly what's on his mind because he's a prophet. He's a divine prophet, the only divine prophet. Right? The one sent from heaven. He's the only one like that. He knows. So Simon thinks, I mean, yeah, Simon the Pharisee thinks he's trapped Jesus, but actually Jesus has trapped him. And we note, again, she, he, she, he wants nothing to do with her. The Pharisee wants nothing to do with the woman. And he doesn't even like the thought of her touching Christ. Not even touching Christ in a positive and proper way, touching him, nothing like that, and that she's a sinner. This detestable person, this detestable excuse for a human being in his mind, is touching Christ, who claims to be a prophet, sent from God, working miracles and preaching the gospel and offering forgiveness of sins. He's making this comparison in his mind. What, what's the problem with him? The problem is he's focused on the woman and he's focused on fault-finding, and he doesn't look to his own sin. He doesn't look to his own sin. That's why Jesus, in verse 40, has to call attention to it. Simon, I have something to say to you. Let's note there, we have his name. That's why we call him Simon the Pharisee. There were many Pharisees, and there were also many men called Simon. Simon, Joseph, John, these were common names at that time biblical names. So, Simon the Pharisee. This is not Simon Peter, by the way, or Simeon in the temple, Luke 2. There are many other people called Simon or Simeon in the Bible. This is Simon the Pharisee. So, that's one point of clarification. Another one we notice is Jesus mentioned his name. Now, that's taboo today. That's a no-no today. If you need to or want to confront some problem, some sin, some heresy, some moral defect in another person, we're told you should never mention the name, 
Never mention the name. Now, I'm not talking about something that's private and secret that needs to be dealt with one-to-one. -one. I'm not talking about that. But we're talking about common names and common people. You should never call out certain false teachers by name, we're told. Don't ever do that. And when you do that, you're judgmental, you're ungracious, you're unloving, you're unbiblical. Jesus would never have done that. We're told all kinds of things like that. But that's not true. In the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, we have the names of many false teachers, many false believers, many heresies and heretics. We have names. The first one is in Genesis chapter 4, Cain. Everybody knows about Cain and Abel. We have his name right there. And then in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, we hear of Jezebel and we hear of the Nicolaitans. These are names of individuals who promote heresies, false concepts of God and false concepts of, of morality and ethics. These are heretics and they're called by name. Why? Because the Bible wants us to identify that the falsehood with these people so that we understand who we're talking about. We understand their doctrine. We understand what it is they teach. We have to understand. If we don't understand who exactly we're talking about, how can we act appropriately? And in modern times, if we don't call out the names of false teachers by name, by name specifically, and say he is so-and-so, and this is where he preaches and teaches, and this is his website, and this is his book, and whatever you, you need to say, to specify, we need to specify. How else can you keep the sheep from reading the books of the goats or of the wolves in sheep's clothing? How else can you prevent that? These days, if something were wrong in, in the medical field, if there were some drug or some kind of uh, a prescription or medicine that were available but it has some poison in it, what do we hear? We hear of the specific name of it, we hear of the brand, we hear of the retailers who, who keep it on their shelves, we, we hear of the specific dates, this is the date, date range, this is the expiration date or whatever, we hear of all those details. Why? To prevent harm, physical harm. Well, don't we want to prevent spiritual harm? Therefore, we have to name names as appropriate. And according to context, we have to name names as Jesus did. And if you'd like to do a, a brief study of this, every chapter of 2 Timothy mentions the, name of two, the names of two false teachers. Every chapter of 2 Timothy, just to do a short study, every chapter mentions two, the names of two false teachers. Also, positive examples are also named. We know of Abel and we know of other positive, many positive examples as well. We ought to do both. We ought to do both. And that's, that's what Jesus does, and Luke does that for our benefit. All right, Jesus says, I have something to say to you. He's, he's preparing the Pharisee, Simon. And Simon cannot say, well, no, I, I, you, I didn't want you to talk. I just came to bring you here to eat. I didn't want you to say anything. He replied, say it, teacher. Say it, teacher. So now Jesus has the platform. He has the platform, and Jesus has turned the tables on him. The Pharisee is framing Jesus for fault-finding, but now Jesus is turning it because he is wiser than men. He, he has heavenly wisdom. He knows how the games are played and the tricks are played and the traps are set up. So he's turning it back on him. That's what we should do. We, we should, right? We say, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Well, what about doing this like Jesus does it? 
We need to learn to do it like Jesus did it and do similarly. Verse 41. A certain money lender, excuse me, money lender had two debtors, one who owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Now in 41, of course we have a parable, even though it's not announced as a parable, that's what it is. And there are two debtors, the 500 denarii and the other 50. We can see it's quite evident that there's a difference of 10 times right here. So one owed 10 times more than the other. You might have a footnote that says that one denarii was equivalent to a day's wage. So if you could imagine about three, uh, I'm sorry, a year and a half's wages is in the one and maybe about a month and a half wages for the other. You can tell that even according to today's standards, there's a big difference in how much is owed. Okay? But notice 42. This is a key verse. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. They were unable to repay. There was a debt that both owed, and both were unable to pay the debt. That means that it takes one action. It takes action from the money lender, the creditor. The creditor has to unilaterally act in order to forgive the debtors. It's not a two-way street. It's not God's will and man's will, or what's known as synergism. It's not synergistic cooperation. It is monogistic. That is, it comes from God, who is our, the creditor, and we are debtors to God. He has to forgive us. That's the way it works. And that's a key uh, uh, point to make as we proceed in this passage. And we'll speak more of it in a few minutes. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? Notice, will love him more based on the amount of debt and then the forgiveness that came graciously, as verse 42 says, when grace has been manifested, then when will the love or how much love will be the response from the debtor? That's the issue. When grace is initiated and given to the debtor, which of them therefore will love him more? Who's going to love him more? Keep in mind, 1 John 4, 19 says, We love because he first loved us. In this verse, the first loving is the graciousness of the creditor, the moneylender, God. That's the first love. There's grace that's poured out onto the debtor or onto the sinner. And then when the sinner repents, believes, he loves God in response to God's initial love. 1 John 4.19 We love because He first loved us. And we might also cite Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 which explicitly speaks of God's initial act and how we love in response to that. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. We see there that when God circumcises the heart, this is when the love is initiated from God. We love because He first loved us. God's love is initiated in us when He circumcises our heart 
And the result of it is to love the Lord your God. We don't love Him before this. We don't naturally love Him before this. He circumcises our hearts. Our hearts are uncircumcised, figuratively speaking, metaphorically speaking. We are stony, hard-hearted people, stubborn, um, persistent in our sin. We have no love of God. We have no tenderness towards the things of God. God has to change that in our heart. Only then will we love Him. Only then. And that's what had happened to the debtors here, and especially to the woman. Verse 43, Luke 7, 43. Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have judged correctly. We see here there is an implicit condemnation. An implicit condemnation. Because in human affairs, in human events, Simon understands, like everybody understands, if there are two debtors and one owes ten times more than the other, who's going to be more appreciative? The one who owed ten times more. If he understands the situation objectively and fairly, right, he's going to know the one who owed ten times more. Simon understood this physically, but he was so dense and stone-hearted that he could not make the spiritual correlation. This is the common problem everybody has. Everybody knows they need to fill their mouths with food and water. Everybody knows that, right? The physical. But who gives a thought? Rarely does anybody give a thought to feeding themselves spiritually with true food and true water. Rarely do people think of that. People know that they need to take care of their body, their physical body. But who takes care of their spiritual body? Who takes care of their soul? Very few people make that connection between the physical to the spiritual. Simon did not. Simon has not up to this point. And as far as we know, he never did. Because it, it doesn't end with his repentance or anything like that. There's no hint of it. He could not make the, the, the correlation because of his problems. He was deflecting from his own sin, imposing uh, guilt and sin on the repentant woman, and trying to find fault with Jesus. This is what people do, and this is what stops them from confessing their own sin. They deflect from their own sin, they put the focus on somebody else preaching holiness and righteousness, which is Jesus, and then look at and compare themselves to other people who, outwardly speaking, outwardly as far as people see, is behaving in a, a way that's worse than himself. That's what people do, to justify their own sin and to avoid the guilt that they know that they have of their sin. They just don't want to deal with it. They want to push it off, and some people push it off so much that they are beyond repair, like Pharaoh, like Pharaoh to Moses. Well. Uh, Jesus confirms he gave the correct answer. And this is the implied rebuke. You have judged correctly. Remember, Jesus said, you are able to tell the weather. You can tell when the sky is red. You say, this uh, that's going to happen. And, and you can tell when that's going to happen. But you cannot judge your own selves and your own spiritual condition. That's what he's implying here. You have judged correctly. 44. Now he's going to 
rebuke him and expose him in front of his guests, in his own house. People say you should not bite the hand that feeds you. Now, in some cases that's true, but when it's a matter of life and death, when it's a matter of spiritual truth, you, you should bite whatever hand that is contrary to the will of God. You should bite. That's what Jesus is doing here. 44, and turning toward the woman, he said to Simon. Look at that. Confronting him to his face, but looking to, toward the woman. Do you see this woman? Of course. And that itself is a rebuke. You see her. And it didn't motivate you? There was no remorse for your own sin? I entered your house. Who is the I? The great Son of God, right? The Holy Son of God. The one who performed miracles, many miracles up to this point. His notoriety was everywhere. People heard what he did. People heard what he was claiming. People knew what John the Baptist was saying about him. John was baptizing with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus, Acts 19.4. People knew all that. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. A clear contrast. This man, he has a, an artificial desire to know Jesus. He invited him to his house, but it was an artificial. He was pretentious. He didn't really want anything to do with Jesus. He wanted to blame Jesus and trip him up. Simon's true character showed here. Romans 12, Acts, uh, Hebrews 13 are passages that explain that true believers desire to practice true hospitality. They desire to show hospitality. Uh, Acts, uh, or Hebrews 13, 2, Let us show hospitality to strangers, for in so doing some have entertained angels without knowing it. So let us show hospitality. He didn't do any of that. He didn't show any fruit of the Holy Spirit. When he had a, 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 a perfect example, a perfect time to do so. And even if the woman weren't there, he didn't do it. But the woman was there, so even more is his sin aggravated. Because there's a contrast. She did all these things and he did nothing. And verse 45, you gave me no kiss. This would be a, a greeting kiss and also parting kisses. There are different kinds of kisses given. Men to men, women to women. And you gave me no kiss. He didn't even approach Jesus. Didn't come close to him to do that. Uh, probably eyeing him from a few feet away. Watching his every move. Seeing where his eyes turned. Seeing how he reclined. Seeing who was saying what and who was looking at him around the table. So watching the woman approach and come into the room. With her, with her tears and her weeping and her uh, vial of perfume. Watching all this, but he doesn't do any of this. He doesn't do any of this. So she produces the fruit of the Spirit, and he produces the fruit, the rotten fruit of the flesh. Right there in front of everyone. 47. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. 
But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Right here he explains in 47, her sins which are many, obvious, explicit sins, everybody knows about them, and they are many, very blatant, not secret and hidden, but blatant, have been forgiven. Notice the past, uh, the, the present past right here. This is, have been forgiven. They're not are being forgiven. He's not saying, I now forgive you. They have been forgiven. And she's showing the fruit of forgiveness and gratefulness by her love for Christ. That's what's happening here. And then he says, um, have been forgiven for she loved much. For she loved much shows what, how much she's responding to the forgiveness she received. He's not saying, because she loved much, she was forgiven. He's saying, she's forgiven, therefore she's showing her great love for the forgiveness of her sins. And then he says, he who is forgiven little, loves little. Here's the problem. He who is forgiven little, loves little. This is a rebuke to Simon the Pharisee. And he's not saying, Simon, that you love me genuinely a little bit. What he's actually saying is, you think you are forgiven little. That's why the kind of love you manifest to me is little. It's barely there. You have a show of hospitality, but it's not true hospitality. You have a show of wanting to hear me speak and, and imbibe what I'm teaching, but you want nothing to do with it. He's talking about the appearance of being forgiven, the appearance of loving. He's not talking about true forgiveness and true love in reference to him. He's not talking about that. Because he thinks he has sinned little. That's why he's loving little. But really, he ought to believe that he has sinned much and then loved much, like the woman. He ought to actually believe he sinned much and therefore he needs forgiveness, therefore he should love much. That's what he means. Now, let me just take a brief uh, minute to explain a couple of things. We saw Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, and 1 John 4, 19. But let's also see what the sequence of events is in the Bible. First, we have elective love or grace from God. That produces regeneration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, based on elective love or grace, regenerates some people. He does not regenerate all people. He regenerates some. And on the basis of regeneration, regeneration can also be called being born again, or the new birth, or having a change of heart, or Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, having a circumcised heart. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He regenerates. And on the basis of regeneration, we then have faith that comes as a gift, faith as a gift to some, and then repentance as a gift to some and after repentance occurs 
What did John the Baptist preach? A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Even Peter preached that in Acts 2.38. And Jesus said in, in Luke 24, 46 and 47, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again on the, uh, from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So repentance produces forgiveness. Forgiveness of sins. And when this happens, then we, we love much. We love much. We, we reciprocate because God's elective love produced regeneration, gave the gift of faith, gave the gift of repentance, forgiveness of sins, and then we manifest it by loving Him much. When we love Him much, we produce the fruit of the Spirit. This is what, what, what the sequence is. Now, the thing that people get tripped up on is that faith and repentance are actually gifts of God to some people. So can I show you a couple of references for faith and repentance being gifts to some, not all. Okay? Gifts to some and not all. Um, for faith being a gift to some. Philippians 1, 29, and 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 and 2. Philippians 1, 29 says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Paul writes to the Philippians, so he's writing to the church in, in Philippians, and he says, To you... It has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, belief and faith are synonyms, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. The rest of the world does not suffer for the sake of Christ. The church, the true church, suffers for the sake of Christ. But the rest of the world doesn't. So the faith or the belief is a gift given by God, granted by God. That's a gift, and the suffering is a gift that are specifically for the church alone, for the chosen ones of God alone. Another example is to confirm that this faith is not given to everyone. Is 2 Thessalonians 3, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 1, verses 1 and 2. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you and that we may be delivered from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. Perverse and evil men are persecuting the church, for not all have faith. Everyone does not have faith. It's not a matter of everyone possessing faith that God gives to every individual throughout history equally, and it's just up to them to act upon it. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's what false teachers teach. But the Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches that God's elective love or grace regenerates by the power of the Holy Spirit, granting faith and repentance as gifts to His people, to His elect, to His sheep, not to everyone. Let's see an example of this exactly being performed in Acts 13, Acts 
uh, excuse me, Acts 16, verses 13 and 14. Acts 16, verses 13 and 14. Acts 16, 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside, where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Actually, verse 15 as well. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is Paul and Luke who go to this riverside. And this is in the area of, uh, of Philippi, or the Philippian church was established right there. And notice, when they go there, it says, they began speaking to the women who had assembled. There's more than one woman there. Correct? There's more than one. We don't know how many. There's at least two. And they were speaking. What would they be speaking about according to verses 14 and 15? They were preaching the gospel of Christ and, and calling on them to repent and believe in the gospel, right? Talking about their sins, talking about how Jesus died on the cross. If they believe in him, they'll be forgiven of sins, right? They would be talking about those things, preaching that. But notice, only Lydia's heart was open. Implicitly, right? Because if everyone's heart was open, wouldn't he have reported that and said it and celebrated that? You would think that that would be the case, but it says, And a certain woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. When it calls her a worshiper of God, it doesn't mean she was already a believer. It means that she had access to the Jewish people and to the Jewish synagogue and to the Old Testament, and she was curious. But where did that curiosity arise? How did that come about? God had to give her proximity and access to that. That's what happened. That's why she's called a worshiper of God, because she's not worshiping idols. She's going to the synagogue. So in that sense, she's not as bad as the blatant worshiper of idols, the pagans who bow down before images. She's not doing that. She's going to the synagogue and listening to the word there. But she's listening to Paul and Luke, and it says, And the Lord opened her heart, opening the heart. That's regeneration. That's circumcision of the heart. She had a closed heart, a stony heart, and then he tenderized it. He softened it. And when he opened her heart, what was the result? To respond to the things spoken by Paul. She had no ability to have faith, no ability to repent on her own. God had to change her heart to respond, to have that effective, definite result. To have that effective and definite result to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And then, 15, and when she and her household had been baptized, this assumes that the household also hears about it, and then they all want to be baptized, and they are baptized. She urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, there's faith. If you have seen a manifestation of true faith in me, 
Come into my house and stay. What's she doing? Hospitality. She's producing good works right here. Genuine works based on faith. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Romans 14, 23. So this desire to practice hospitality is emanating from true faith. If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come. So they go. They, she prevailed upon them. She wouldn't let it go. She really wanted to do a kind deed for these messengers of God. So they do so. This is a perfect example and a contrary example. Simon the Pharisee didn't do any of this. He didn't do it because of all of this. He, didn't, he had a hard heart. His heart was not opened. And he refused to repent. This is what he did not get. But she did. The repentant, sinful woman, she did. Back to Luke 7 and verse 48. And he said to her, Your sins have been forgiven. Have been forgiven. Not are now forgiven, but have been forgiven. You might say, why is he announcing it? And he will also announce in verse 50. And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Has saved you. He doesn't say, now saves you, has saved you. So these things had already happened. She's just manifesting them. We might ask, why is he announcing these things? Well, for a couple of reasons. One, to give her assurance that she is saved. To give her assurance that she is indeed saved. Hearing it from the lips of the Lord himself. That's one. Number two, because of verse 49. To put the other men, the other unrepentant men, the other unrepentant sinful men on the spot and to convict them. But what do they say? Verse 49. And those who were reclining at table with him began to say to themselves, or your Bible might say among themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? They are offended. They are offended just like the Pharisee. His pals are there, are right there. They're all there schmoozing, right? They're all patting each other on the back, flattering each other, passing compliments, talking about how great and wonderful people one another is. Likely that all of that was happening. That's what usually happens when you have a bunch of pastors who get together or a bunch of professors who get together or a bunch of politicians who get together. They tell each other how great one another is. That's often what happens. And all kinds of other high-minded people. Actors do that too, right? Actresses, they all do that. So, that's what they're doing. They're so fixated on themselves in a wrong sense. They're so, the wrong sense. They're puffed up. They have to accuse Jesus. Who is this man who even forgives sins? Weren't enough miracles already performed? Yes. Wasn't enough truth already preached? Yes. And none of that moved them. None of that moved them because they were dead in their trespasses and sins. They had a stubborn and hard heart. And instead of looking to their own sin and repenting of them, uh, their sins, they looked at Christ and they heaped insults on Him. They heaped insults on Him instead of repenting themselves. Now, one more point I, I meant to mention earlier, and that is repentance. Repentance in the Bible is also considered a gift. Romans 2.4 says, 
that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. The kindness of God leads you to repentance. And then also in 2 Timothy 2, 2 Timothy 2, 23 to 26, the apostle describes how repentance is a gift. It's granted by God to some. 2.23, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. These people who produce quarrels, he says that they're going to overcome this uh, tenacity uh, and persistency in uh, producing quarrels by these means. Verse 25, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. By means of our righteousness, we behave properly among them. God will use that, may use that, it says, if perhaps, and grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And this is salvation because they come to their senses. Notice there, when we are unbelievers, we are insane. We have lost our senses. But when we are believers, we are sane people. We're, we are of a right mind. And then we escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. He, these people were sons of the devil, but now they're not trapped by him anymore. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.